Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on, pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra, and gives respect to Elders past, present and emerging. You're listening to a Yarra Libraries podcast. Today, we have our author talk with Laura Elizabeth Woollett, which was recorded on August 22nd in 2018. In conversation with Wheeler Centre Programming Manager Veronica Sullivan, Laura discussed her latest book, Beautiful Revolutionary, her research on Jim Jones and the People's Temple, and the moral quandaries that surround writing fiction based on real-life tragedies. This is an edited recording, with audience questions either repeated by Veronica Sullivan or revoiced by Yarra Library staff members. Enjoy! Hello everyone, thank you so much for coming this evening. My name is Veronica Sullivan uh, and I'm Programming Manager at the Wheeler Centre but I'm here tonight just as a Laura Willett fan and reader. I'm very, very excited to be here tonight and to be chatting with Laura Willett about her new book, Beautiful Revolutionary. I'll just give a little intro about Laura before we start and then we're going to talk for about 45 minutes and we'll have uh, 10 to 15 minutes at the end for questions so if there are things that you would like to know more about as we're speaking um, keep that in mind that we'll have some time for questions at the end. So Laura Bullitt was born and raised in Perth. In 2012 she completed an honours degree in creative writing at the University of Melbourne In 2014, she was awarded a Wheeler Centre Hot Desk Fellowship and the John Marsden Hachette Prize for Fiction, and she was chosen as one of the 2015 Melbourne Writers Festival's 30 Under 30. Her short story collection, The Love of a Bad Man, was released in 2016, and it was shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Fiction and the Ned Kelly Award for Best First Fiction. Please join me in welcoming Laura. Um, Laura, I think we're going to kick off with a little reading because Laura's a beautiful reader uh, and it's just really nice to get a sense, I think, of the book and of her voice IRL. So, thank you, Laura. <laughs> um, apologies to anyone who was at my launch because I'm going to read the same section that I read when I was launching the book. This is from the beginning of the last chapter, but it's actually a flashback, so... Um, most of the chapter takes place in Jonestown on the final day of Jonestown, but um, which was November 18, 1978. But this flashback takes place in 1966. When she heard the doorbell ring on that smoky blue evening in the fall of 66, in the house she shared with her many girlfriends, Evelyn had been ready to fall in love with whoever might be standing on the other side of it. A bone-deep readiness bordering on boredom. She was bored, she could admit it. After Bordeaux, Jean-Claude. Those miserable weeks staying in hostels without Jean-Claude. The weeks after those weeks back in her parents' house, not knowing why she was there. How she could have given up the world for the slow drip trickle of church, relatives. Everyone tiptoeing around her broken engagement like she'd die if it was mentioned. Yes, bored. She was bored of those girls she lived with. Joan, Linda, Marilyn, Mary Kay. And the little house they'd taken such pains to beautify. Bored of how she acted around those girls, like a pinwheel desperate to spin faster, brighter than all the rest. Sharing stories of lanterns along the Pont de Pierre, recipes for crepe Suzette. Spurning cosmetics and prim shift dresses to go about fresh-faced, in flouncy gypsy skirts. She'd even mastered talking about Jean-Claude without getting upset. And if anyone dared to ask what they were all wondering, why, 
could summon the perfect tone of worldly resignation. Honestly, the better my French got, the less interesting he was. Yet this didn't change the fact that she was bored by the sound of her own voice, that her life, for all its grand intentions, had never seemed so trivial. It was enough to make her want to, well, maybe not kill herself, but join the Peace Corps, maybe, spend a year on the Ivory Coast, or maybe, just maybe, fall in love again. So she was the first to jump at the sound of the bell, to abandon the canapes they were fussing with, to wipe her hands and chime, I'll get it. The canapes were her idea, but already it was clear they'd overdone it. Some grad, grad students had cancelled last minute, and to make up the numbers, Joan and Mary Kay had spent the afternoon inviting random cute boys, while the rest of them cleaned and shopped. Yet so far the only guests to show up were Linda's cousin Judy and Cronkite, a neighbourhood cat whose visits coincided with the evening news. There was a wine glass in her hand, a barrette in her hair. Over the summer she'd decisively grown out the chic French girl bob she'd worn since sophomore year. Sipping her wine, tucking her hair, feeling the glitter of wine in her eyes, the warmth on her cheeks. That's how she was when she opened into the smoky blue evening. Beautiful blue-eyed boy whose name she didn't yet know was Lenny Linden. You're here, Evelyn beamed at him. I'm so glad. Beautiful. Um, I think that that gives us a really nice little introduction to Evelyn, who's one of the protagonists. And I want to come back to Evelyn and a few of the other um, major characters in uh, very shortly. Um, but first, I think for a lot of people, Jim Jones and Jonestown is a familiar you know, from, I was thinking for myself, when I came to the book, I was like, oh, I feel like I've probably watched a documentary about this at some point in my life. And I have a vague sense that like something quite bad happened and Kool-Aid was involved, but I didn't know the details and I didn't even kind of have a framework f that I was approaching it with, which was kind of a treat. But I was wondering if you could just kind of give us a loose sketch outline of who Jim Jones was and what People's Temple was, um, because that's really the, the kind of framework within which all the characters are moving throughout the book. Well, um, yeah, like Veronica said, a lot of the things that people know about this story are the Kool-Aid, um, Jim Jones and his sunglasses and black hair, um, the fact that the jungle was involved and um, a bunch of people died. And it was actually 900 people, or more than 900. But yeah, the, there's a lot of things that people don't know and that's that the church began in the 1950s in Indiana, um, which was where Jim Jones was originally from. This was a time that was very racist and um, Jones was actually quite committed to integrating his church and having a congregation which was both black and white, which was a really revolutionary thing at the time and no one else in Indiana was really doing that. But in the mid-1960s, he moved his church to California, um, which is where the book mostly takes place. And... At that time, they kind of grew because they began attracting younger people from the, I guess, left-wing movements, anti-Vietnam, um, anti-racism, sort of movements that were going on at the time. And they grew um, to this really, you know, huge movement. And they eventually moved to San Francisco and Jones became actually quite involved in San Francisco politics. Um, he was chummy with George Moscone, who was the mayor at the time, and um, Harvey Milk as well. Yeah, but eventually they, they attracted more and more controversy. People were leaving the church and stories were getting out about um, strange practices, money being stolen from members, and 
um, corporal punishment for you know minor misdeeds. Um, and yeah, Jones's control over his con congregation and their personal lives, all of that was beginning to get out. And as they attracted more controversy, um, he decided to relocate to Jonestown, Guyana, where they had the church had a small agricultural settlement and it was never meant to be for over a thousand people. Um, it was only meant to be for, for about 500 people in the church. Yeah, but he moved everyone over there and uh, yeah, pretty much overnight it became crowded and um, not enough food and just these really miserable conditions. And yeah, within within a couple of years, the Jonestown massacre happened and that was um, actually the, the largest loss of American civilian life in a non-war related incident um, prior to 9-11. So it was really a huge thing. Some of the elements that you mentioned there there's things that we associate with cults and, and, you know, that's obviously like corporal punishment and the manipulation. Those are things that you hear about those kinds of behaviours and you think, well, that sounds like a cult. But obviously he was charismatic and there were all these, you know, over a thousand people who were drawn to him and who fell under his spell in some way. Can you talk a bit about like some of the reasons that you envisioned why people were attracted to this to this message that he was selling. I mean, you've mentioned the anti-racism angle, which was probably a really beautiful thing for many people to be involved with. Um, but yeah, what were the kind of what sorts of people were drawn into people's temple? Was there a unifying characteristic, or was it really a broad spread? What were some of the, the impulses or the motivations that might have brought people towards people's temple? Well, I was actually lucky enough to go to America and interview some people who were involved in the church. And they were quite a small subset of the church. They were mostly people from the California generation, the, the ones who joined after college, um, looking for something to do with their lives and looking for something to commit to. And yeah, so they, generally the people I was speaking to were from that like middle class background. Most of them were white people who I spoke to. Um, so they were attracted for ideological reasons. And it's it's a misconception that Jonestown or People's Temple was, you know, this religious movement because for a lot of people they weren't actually attracted to the relig religious aspects and they weren't religious people. They were considered themselves atheists. But really there, there was, you know, all these different groups of people who joined. There was the Indiana generation who did tend to be a bit more Christian and attracted to traditional Christian values Um but also wanted to practice what they preached and not just go to church and sit in the sermon and actually not really make a difference in the world. So I think the probably the unifying characteristic was that they wanted to make a difference and they wanted to actually live by the values that they were preaching or being preached. Yeah, but of the people I spoke to, um, there were some who were actually drawn to Jim Jones and his charisma. One guy spoke really vividly about him and he told me a story of um, how he was actually the first new member who joined in California, the, the first new recruit from that generation. And he was invited to a party by another People's Temple member who he just met on the street. And at the party he ended up speaking to a man, didn't catch the man's name and it was happening in someone's backyard and there was just some um, candlelight and it was very like you know dark and 
didn't really know what was going on. But he ended up talking to this man and just, he said, you know, it was the best conversation of my life. It was, you know, we talked about everything and it was so deep and I never even got his name. And that man was Jim Jones. And the same man who told me the story, he, he told me, you know, he didn't like religion. He didn't really have any desire to, to join a church, but he was invited and um, he went the following weekend and um, he was like, yeah, you know, it was never as good as that first conversation he had with Jim. But, um, you know, right, right away, I guess he was drawn to, uh, I guess, the things that he was telling him and he didn't really get specific about what they talked about. But, but then there were also people who had very little personal contact with Jim and um, were really just drawn to the church because of other people they met which I think is something that doesn't really get talked about. Everyone kind of assumes that people join because of the leader and they don't talk about, you know, there are all these other great people who were there and making friends and doing things. So, yeah, a lot of people didn't really have as much contact with Jim and were actually just there because they believed in socialism and they liked what the church was offering, you know, on a, in a more personal sort of way. So on the note of the idealism, I'd love to circle back around to Evelyn and Lenny Linden, who um, the, the section that Laura read before was about Evelyn. And when we when the book starts, we meet Evelyn and Lenny, who are this very young couple, newlyweds, uh, and they're incredibly different people. But we we sort of follow them pretty closely for the first section, and then come back to them towards the end. And they're always around, but there are there are many, many protagonists as well throughout the different parts of the book. So Evelyn and Lenny are a very useful couple to follow, but there's so much else going on. Um, but I, I find that really interesting in terms of what made them the starting and ending point for you um, because Lenny is this young, conscientious objector, pacifist, kind of uh, weak-willed or a bit, a bit aimless and a bit kind of passive and Evelyn is like quite a sharp, severe, neurotic young woman so they're they've got very different personality types um and their involvement with people's temple is very different as well without going into too much detail Evelyn is uh, based on a real life woman who was Jim's mistress so she obviously gets very close in there uh, and Lenny kind of is buffeted in the sway and in the tides of what he's told to do by others so I'm just really interested in those two people who we see come in as very young, very green and very open to being pulled around or moving in different ways Uh, and how you settled on them as essential characters and perhaps beyond just them as individuals and as really interesting people and interesting characters, how their progression throughout the book fits in with what the story you wanted to tell about People's Temple. Well, I, I knew from the beginning that these were the characters I wanted to focus on, especially Evelyn. And before this book, I wrote a collection of short stories called The Love of a Bad Man, which um, was all about the wives and girlfriends of notorious bad men. And the woman who Evelyn is based on, Carolyn Layton, I actually researched her very closely for that book and I wanted to write about her. Um, but I couldn't capture her voice in a first-person story. And um, I I read so many things about her, but one thing that stood out about her, um, that her sister 
wrote, and her sister is actually a religious studies scholar, so she has this perspective of her which is both like academic and analytical, but also personal. Yeah, and she she said something about Carolyn, which was, um, you know, she was absent from herself in, in her time in People's Temple. Um, you know, her voice is on hardly any of the many audio tapes that, that you can find, and she's not in many photographs. Um, and she really, like, kind of negated her own personal life and became a sort of vessel for the cause. But she, I, I was really drawn to her because I read... Um, all this original source material. I read letters that she wrote to her family and um, she seemed like a, you know, strong, independent, maybe not strong, but an independent person and a person who had clearly defined values and yet at the same time she was constantly trying to um, say how good Jim Jones was and, you know, convince her family that she was making the right decision. But really she she joined the church at the age of 23 and... um, straight out of college and she's one of those people who is a high achiever and um, did really well within the structure of school and university but I feel like I I could recognize the the impulse I guess once she is out of that world and just like what am I doing with my life now how can I make a difference and um, not having an easy answer to that and then the temple comes along and so I think that that was really easy for me to identify with because I have been that age and I I have had those same thoughts. And her and Lenny as a couple, um, I I liked how different they were and Lenny is also based on a real person and um, who who had similar characteristics as you described. And yeah, her family actually, um, Carolyn's family wrote about and talked about the relationship between these two young people and basically described it as a rebound. You know, they they weren't a couple who their families really expected to last, but they end up being broken up by Jim Jones, which was quite dramatic and um, probably an earlier end to the relationship than would have happened. But yeah, they both joined the church at a young age and um, have this desire to be useful, I guess. Um, And they both end up in very different places and I was really drawn to that aspect of the story. Um, the fact that Evelyn becomes pretty much the most powerful person in the church after Jim Jones and Lenny is this sort of powerless character and yet he he has this desire to be useful constantly. So yeah, I was, I was just really fascinated by it, where they began and also where they en- wound up finding themselves. Uh, you mentioned... The Love of a Bad Man, uh, your story collection, and that you sort of first came across um, the Carolyn Layton character there. And one of the stories in that collection was about Jim Jones' first wife, Marceline. Well, her name's Marceline in real life, but Rosaline in Beautiful Revolutionary. So obviously you were, you had written a bit about this world and these these people that were in this in this setting and about Jim to a degree and you, you'd already kind of written a story but of all the stories in that collection, what was it about People's Temple that kind of drew you back or that made you think that you weren't done with finding out more about that? Because like very quickly that, that collection has all these amazing every, – every story is based on a real-life couple and they've all committed fascinating and gruesome crimes and there's so much in there but that 
that one obviously drew you back. So did you know at the time that – did you have a strong sense that that one was different? Uh, and what, what made you kind of come back to that one as opposed to any of the other fascinating grisly stories from your first collection? Well, actually, I, I ended up writing um, the, the Marceline story after I had started Beautiful Revolutionary. And um, when I originally submitted the manuscript of my short story collection to publishers um, – it had a story about Carolyn, which I felt was weak and I wasn't sure about, um, and I got rid of that. And I ended up writing the the story about Marceline after I had done all this research and decided to keep delving into people's temple. So that came quite easily because I, ha- I had all this re- research already. But yeah, it, it comes back to the point I was saying about um, Carolyn and how her sister talked about her being absent from herself. And all those stories in The Love of Bad Man are from a first-person perspective. They have, a, like, strong voices and a, a strong sense of subjectivity, I guess. And I didn't feel like I could write about Carolyn that way. I felt like I needed to write about her more from the outside. But I also didn't want to be bound by one perspective or a couple of perspectives because I spoke to all these different people about Carolyn, who she was in real life, and depending on when they knew her and what kind of relationship they had with her, just it was completely different, even down to the way she was described physically. Like people who knew her within People's Temple and had unpleasant dealings with her were like, oh, I, I didn't find her attractive, basically, on, on a physical level. And that was really strange to me. And I, and, um, I also had the experience of talking to her sister, her father, um, a girl she was friends with in college, and just getting a completely different picture of her as this like vivacious um spirited um insecure sometimes but like yeah neurotic like you said young woman who had a lot going for her and who who was um smart and opinionated and all that whereas um people who knew her within the temple just saw her as this blank emotionless bureaucrat almost so yeah having the um different perspectives was really important to me and I by that point was just fascinated with the whole story and was learning about all these other people who were involved in the temple and um, coming up with new characters and composite characters and stuff. So yeah it's a world that once I got into I'm just like yeah you know I'm here there's so much more to write about and to learn about. On that note you you mentioned that you did a research trip to the States and I think I've seen you speak or, or write it before about all the reading that you did and just just how exhaustively researched um, your process, writing process was and you can feel that really strongly in the book. How did that trip inform the setting or the vividness of what you were writing uh, and did you – I was also really curious if you thought about going to Guyana and like is there anything there in the jungle now that you could go and visit? Well, actually, um, a few temple members and one of them actually brought her son along with her. They went back earlier this year for a documentary. Um, I'm not sure when it's airing, but I presume probably around November 18 this year. Yeah, they went back for the first time in like probably 40 years or something. And the site where Jonestown was has been overgrown by jungle. There's really nothing there anymore. But they had connections in Guyana who they hadn't seen in years so they they did really have all these unanswered questions and wanted to go back I you know maybe 
vaguely flirted with the idea, but it was never really a serious idea to me. You know, it's difficult to get to. It's quite a dangerous country to travel to as well. Um, and yeah, financially, you know, it wasn't really a, a, an option. And this book kind of got bigger and bigger as I was writing it. I, I wasn't expecting it to be 400 pages long. And most of it takes place in California, and that's really the, the time that I was focusing on when I was researching. And then I'm like, well, I have to write Jonestown as well, but that came a lot later and was something I didn't really think about until I had done a lot of reading and a lot of um, my research trip as well. But doing that trip was just, yeah, re really immersive, and having that time to think about nothing except the subject was really important to me. I got to go to Redwood Valley, which is um, the basis of Evergreen Valley, I call it in the book. And I ran to the back and rode to the old People's Temple building, which is still there. And it's, it's actually still a church, but it's an Assembly of God church now. It's, it's nothing wacky. But yeah, the same building. And I, I had seen this building and all these photographs and um, recognized it. And yeah, I... Redwood Valley is just this really quite small town in Northern California and it has vineyards all around it and it's really very rural. And I had never really been anywhere like that so seeing it with my own eyes was really important and I think um, gave my descriptions a, a layer of reality I guess which um, you wouldn't get so much just from looking at photos. And Laura wrote a really beautiful piece for Kill Your Darlings about that trip, a little memoir piece which I revisited um, before this event and it's a really nice little glimpse of you just kind of being immersed in this place that you were fictionalising at the same time. It's a gorgeous piece and I would recommend it. On on that note though, obviously there's there was so much material and you mentioned that difficulty of it growing bigger and bigger the more you looked into it uh, and I think you've described it before as like a Jonestown vortex that you kind of got sucked into the longer you went along. Uh, I'm interested in how you decided when you had all this true information but you also obviously had this impulse to fictionalise and to be really creative with it, how you decided um, what to invent and what to kind of uh, go with your own ideas about and how much of the real stories and the real experiences you wanted to keep um, authentically as they were told to you or as, the, as you researched them? Um, well, the most important thing was that I had a clear idea of who my two main characters were, Evelyn and Lenny, and I knew where they started and I knew where they had to end up and it was just a matter of getting there. And in the middle of the book, I actually, like, the first, you know, I think third of the book maybe is um, 1968, 1969, and then it jumps ahead to 1972 and then again to 75, then 77, and then it kind of slows down again towards the end and you get... um. 1978 presented in more detail and those time jumps were for me essential because I didn't want to you know write every single year in detail the book would have just been like you know a thousand two thousand pages long if that if I did that and so I, I chose some sometimes which seemed um important to me and which had events which I found interesting and just um wanted to explore a bit more but yeah, when it came to like knowing what to leave out, what to fictionalise, I tended to just follow my instincts. Like I had um, 
I, I had the idea of where I wanted to end up and just um, getting there was the important thing. There were a lot of things that happened in the real people's temple, which I just do not mention at all in the book. Um, you know, things like Jim Jones's mother was a member of the church and with them for the whole time and died in Jonestown before the massacre happened, just from natural causes. She's not even a character in the book. There was just a lot of people who I had to leave out just for um, economy's sake. And, and um, yeah, so I, I tended to just stick with the stories that were interesting to me and um, created composite characters when it was convenient. And staying tr true to the two main characters was my main goal. Uh, of those that you did interview or whose fictionalised um, characters would still be identifiable to surviving mem former members or family of deceased members, have you had responses from people to the book and what, what's that kind of been like for you as an experience but also what has their feedback been? Um, well, it's quite early and I, I have actually um, sent out copies of the book to all of the temple members who I interviewed. And yeah, I think for the most part, they're all still reading it. One of them actually emailed me the other week and um, he was one of the people who really disliked Carolyn. And in his email, he said, you know, I understand why you had to change names, but I wish you didn't have to because I, I want to see her kind of condemned. Um, by name, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, it, it was kind of intense. Um, but a, another one has written back to me saying, like, you know, it's amazing how well I managed to capture those times when I wasn't even there. Um, so now I'm just, like, waiting to hear back from a lot of other people. But my first reader, besides my editor, was actually um, Carolyn's sister, Becky. And that was really nerve-wracking and I was just waiting and waiting to see what she would say. And it was kind of frustrating because she, she's a very pedantic sort of person. And um, she was just like picking up on literary things and like, oh, I don't like that word. <laughs> and it's like, that's not why I want you to read it, you know? <laughs> like, I, I want to know if this is like a good reflection of your sister or not and um yeah she was just like oh this thing didn't exist in you know 1975 so yeah I got I, I got a lot of feedback from her but it wasn't the feedback I was expecting and like once she once she had read the whole thing she's like you know it's good um like it's a good like literary representation of the temple um I don't know how close to Carolyn this char character is um but she said she she did find her un unsympathetic, which was like, well, I, I knew that was a possibility from the way that I wrote her. But yeah, she she gave it her seal of approval, I guess, which was really important to me. Uh, I find that idea of the characters being sympathetic or not really interesting because I don't think any of the characters in this book are wholly likeable. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that's a really interesting reading experience, but you also kind of need some element of empathy for them otherwise you know your readers are not going to be engaged and, and I found that line so beautifully balanced because it was, I was so I cared so much about what happened to them but I probably wouldn't want to spend time with any of them in real life <laughs> and so yeah I'm, I'm, I'd love to know what your thoughts are Laura on that idea of likability and I know that that's something that comes up a lot for women writers particularly and for female characters but whether you find the idea of writing likeable or unlikable characters relevant or yeah just just how that that idea 
what impulse and what reaction that provokes in you? Well, I think I'm always drawn to the unlikable characters. Like, even watching stuff like Mad Men, I'm like, oh, I love Betty Draper, you know? Like, I, I like those difficult women and um, the characters who are a bit cold. And I'm actually ex exploring the fragility of those characters, even when, you know, like, I had these moments where I'm like, delving into Evelyn's head and like yeah I sympathize so much with her and then she does something horrible and I'm like you know that's necessary because that's who she was from the outside she she was saying horrible things and doing horrible things sometimes but I did like I did enjoy going under her skin I guess and um seeing who she was beneath that so yeah I think it was more important for me for my characters to be I guess vulnerable and um insecure sometimes so you could kind of see if not like the justifications for their actions at least um, the human frailty behind them and I think yeah that that's always more important to me than likability I yeah you know you, you get characters sometimes who are likable and it was a nice break um towards the middle of the book I had this chapter called children of the revolution where I explore the perspectives of some young people who actually leave the temple because they don't like things that are going on. And just having those characters was really refreshing for me and, you know, having a break from Evelyn and from Lenny. But, yeah, they, I, I liked both of the characters, um, Evelyn and Lenny. I, I had a lot of sympathy for both of them. I, at times, saw myself in both of them. Um, yeah, and I think... When I write these characters, I always try to start from a point of familiarity or sy sympathy and then I can take it to places where I would hopefully never go myself as a person. Um, yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit more about some of those other characters uh, and one in particular who I was really invested in is a character called Jean Luce who appears pretty early on and becomes a bigger focus uh, towards that sort of central section and he is a, a, a policeman, gay but closeted and has a family and acts as a kind of recruiter for people's temple and and eventually does sort of try to, to leave and it doesn't go well for him or for many of the other people who try to leave and I'm, I'd love to know a bit about that character and the role of the recruiter as well as what the reality was for people who, who left and, and what the methods were of preventing people from leaving um, in in the book and in Real People's Temple. I think the lines are pretty blurred <laughs> for the purposes of this discussion. Yeah, well, well, that character was actually a character who just kind of came out of nowhere for me. Um, really early on in the book, you know, I just started writing one of the first chapters or scenes is from his perspective and I'm just like where did that come from you know because I, I wasn't planning it at all and at that point I was just like is this going to be like just switching perspectives all the time um but it didn't end up that way it was just he was a rare character who just emerged in that way and he wasn't really based on anyone but I did want him to represent the old generation of people's temple the Indiana temple and the dis discomforts that those people felt when um, the younger Californian elements started joining and getting more power and influence and changing the way the church operated and looked um, because the you know old Indiana group had a lot more power in the old days. So seeing that power changing hands and um, this character's frustration with that and also his personal frustrations, the way I guess he, his decisions that he's made in life are kind of confronted as times change and as the temple changes. 
But in terms of people leaving, it, it was interesting because there were defectors at various points throughout the temple and there were people who just dropped off and stopped attending and it wasn't really remarked on that much. But if you were an important person or you represented something important, then it was more of a dramatic thing. And um, the group of young people who left, uh, there were eight young people who left in 1973. They were, it was four girls, four guys, um, four black, four white. So they were kind of a really, um, I guess, intersection of the church and they represented the young generation which um, had been in the temple for a long time and had parents in the temple, a lot of them. And they were all college students. They um, had graduated from college and the temple had invested in their education and um, really building who they were. So to have these people leave, these young people who were kind of the hope of the temple, um, was a major blow to Jim Jones. And that caused him to kind of increased security and um, really, like, I guess, knuckle down and be be a bit more, like, disciplinarian. Yeah, it changed things. That was the first major defection. But after that, I think there were a few other defections which had um, an influence in a negative way on Jim Jones and his, you know, mentality. And they were predominantly... Um, white men and white women who were part of the inner circle and had information. So when people from that group left, it was, um, yeah, it, it was a big thing and he worried about, you know, them stealing the finances and all that sort of thing. But by the time Jonestown, um, everyone had moved to Jonestown, Jones was just really concentrated on keeping as many people as he could. So any defection um, by that point even if it was someone who he didn't have personal connection with and didn't deal with day to day and who didn't have information, by that point he was just like, no, I need everyone close to me and one person leaving is, you know, we we may as all well die because we're not a unified group anymore. That's that's the way he magnified it. Yeah, so he, he was just really concerned with keeping everyone close and controlling people and um, making sure no one got out, really. I guess it's harder to defect once you're in the middle of the jungle in a foreign country as well. I'd like to go to audience questions in a few minutes, but before we do, uh, I wanted to ask you about now that the book's been out for a little while and you've had some reviews and they, I think they've all been very positive, but I have noticed that some of the things that reviewers are picking up on are maybe not the things that you would prefer that they pick up. You, you, you know, that people are sometimes reading the book with a lens that is not the lens that you had intended or which I suppose is inevitable to some degree. But on that note, I'd love to know what you would like people to bring to their reading, like what you would hope people have in mind or what the, the reader that you're writing for, I suppose, what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, I think the book has been sold and I don't object to this as a novel about a cult, um, which, which it is. But I think a lot of people come to it being like, oh, I like cults. I, I'm interested in cult leaders. I want to know how this person is so charismatic that they keep everyone or I want to know why people fall for this. And they have these preconceptions and... Um, ideas about what it is and also about the questions it will answer and so I found like those people tend to be a bit more like 
oh, this didn't focus on what I thought it would. Um, you know, this didn't explain why this person was so charismatic, whatever. So I, I, I found like the people who have had a better understanding of it haven't had those preconceptions so much. They've just been like, oh, you know, this is a book about a time period that I'm interested in or, um, you know, it, it's about characters who seem interesting. And I, I, I tend to prefer that even though um, I, I am also, like I, I am fascinated by cults in generally and I, I would read a book about one. Um, but yeah, I, I think just the expectation that it's going to answer these questions, which um, weren't necessarily my goal to answer. Yeah, and I think especially with the idea of charisma and Jim Jones, I mean, he's such a famous, infamous figure. And so when people come to the book wanting to know all about him, um, that wasn't really the point of it. So I actually had one review which kind of pissed me off because it spent about five paragraphs talking about Jim Jones and one paragraph talking about my other characters, um, which when you've spent all this time writing these characters and trying to make them into fully realised people is quite frustrating. And I feel like in 400 pages you do so much. Like, you know, there's plenty about cults if that's what you're there for, but there's so much, there's so much other amazing stuff going on that it's very hard to be unsatisfied, whatever you're looking for. Does anyone have any questions for Laura? If you'd like to put your hand up, you can just ask away. If not, that's fine. We can keep chatting too. With what you were saying before about how you were deep in your Jonestown research before writing the short story in The Love of a Bad Man, I'm curious as to your process when you're researching multiple historical events or when you're balancing those stories in this book. How do you compartmentalise the actual writing time in the research? Have you had multiple projects up at the same time or...? Well, I, I had actually completed all the short stories and I just decided to go back and like, nah, I don't like that one I wrote, I'm going to write a new one and swap it. So yeah, I, I had mostly been like done and dusted with the short story collection. I'm not really someone who can work on multiple things at a time. Like this past year I, ha I have been more, but just more small stuff, not not like huge projects. But yeah, in terms of the writing, I think it was, um, yeah, once I got past the first first chapter and first half of the second chapter, then I was quite deeply into it. But before that, I was just like, oh, I don't know if this is good yet and I don't know and I'm just going to keep researching. And so that came very slowly. But once I got past a certain point, it came more quickly and I knew who the people were. I still had points where I slowed down and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I need to do more research. Um, and there were definitely things that changed throughout the book as well and things that I added in the last section, which hadn't been my plan to begin with. So yeah, it, it was, um, even though after a point I was writing pretty solidly, like almost every day, yeah, I was still like, no, I need to go read about that thing which I glossed over before or, or I need to come back to this or I need to think more about this aspect of the temple which, um, you know, I, I've kind of put aside and not, not really questioned too much. Um, so the research was pretty constant um, all the way through, even to the last third of the book. So. Yeah, I'll just repeat that one. Um, this gentleman just asked if Laura was under any obligation to fictionalise or legal legal pressure to fictionalise rather than telling a straight narrative. No, nothing like that. Although I do wonder, like, if I did, you know, call these characters 
by their real names, um, if anyone would mind. I, I, I did, um, you know, I, I had been in contact with the sister of um, Carolyn, who Evelyn is based on, and she seemed to like me, and I don't know how she would have felt if I called her Carolyn. I think she would have been okay with it, because other things have been written, um, and some really bad fiction has been written, and, like, no one knows about it because it's so bad. It's just... um. Yeah, using real names, and as far as I know, no legal repercussions happened, but it was because it was self-published and um, didn't get much attention. But yeah, I think, I don't know, like I, I always wanted to fictionalise them because I, I wanted to have that freedom and I wanted to be like, well, I don't know the answer to this, so I'm going to make something up. And knowing that something's made up, completely made up, you don't want to call it by the name of someone who actually existed. Yeah, the question was, Did in reality, did lots of black people go to Jonestown more so than white people because the black people may have been um, poorer at that period? Well, the church was, uh, after a certain point, I think um, when it was in Indiana and in rural Northern California, it was still predominantly white for a long time. But then um, towards the early 70s, uh, yeah, more African-American members started joining, especially when they began recruiting in um, San Francisco and also um, Los Angeles as well. They recruited a lot of people from urban areas there. And yeah, it was because, um, you know, integration was the message of the church. They, they were really focused on recruiting people. Yeah, Jonestown, about 80% of the people who died there were African-American. And when you compare... Um, you know, the the people who survived weren't necessarily representative of that. It was more, um, although there were black and white survivors, there seemed to be more white survivors because a lot of them survived because they were working in um, Georgetown, which was the capital of uh, Guyana, and doing more sort of, um, I guess, like diplomatic or administrative work there. And, yeah, the, the temple's power structure was very... Um, not representative of the membership. More white people had power and um, there are lots of, you know, speculations about why that was, but it seems to come down to Jim Jones's, you know, personal, yeah, problems and um, the the way he controlled people, I guess. So, yeah, the, the race was definitely a huge part of life in the temple and it was definitely a, a questionable aspect about how it operated because... Um, yeah, you had this membership which was integrated and yet you had leadership which wasn't. Mm, yeah, that was just a question about any synchronicities that arose during the writing process between real-life people and, and the fictional versions that Laura was writing. I know, like, especially when I was working on the last section, um, I came upon a bit of footage from NBC had a camera crew go to Jonestown with the congressman, Leo Ryan, who was investigating. And they captured a lot of real-life people on this footage. And um, there was one bit where they captured Carolyn at the... Um, there was a kind of celebration dinner to welcome the congressman the night before the Jonestown massacre happened. Um, and a bunch of people, you know, after that dinner and the next morning... Um, came forward saying they wanted to leave. But in this footage, it, it captured Carolyn uh, sitting at a table with a young man. And I was like, who is he? And um, like they looked kind of close and were kind of like talking, whispering in, in each other's ears and stuff. And I'm like, 
who is that? I asked my contact at the Jonestown Institute and he's like, oh, that's that's Tim Carter. And I'm like, oh, yeah, he's still alive and he talks to people sometimes. So I ended up talking to this guy and he was just like, you know, debunked any like theories I had about, oh, like they look pretty close and chummy, whatever, because he's like, yeah, you know, I didn't have much to do with Carolyn. But after seeing that, it kind of was like, oh, but what would happen if um, she did have a relationship with, someone who wasn't Jim Jones in Jonestown. Um, that kind of thought got into my head. So, um, yeah, the the research and real-life stuff sparked off fictional stuff for me a lot of the time. Any other questions? Yeah, so just how long was the process from start to finish, I suppose? Um, well, I finished work on my short story collection in 2014 and kind of, like, moved straight on from that to this. I did my research trip in... May, June 2015 and from then until halfway through last year pretty solidly I was working on the book. Um, I, I turned in the final manuscript June last year um, and then after that of course there was editing and yeah um, so the whole process I think from start to finish was about three years, um, slightly more but yeah. And But you mentioned that you had already sort of been thinking about it before you started writing Love of a Bad Man. So had it been swirling or you'd been playing with it? Um, no, not really. I, I um, Yeah, it, it, I started researching it when I was writing The Love of a Bad Man because I, I um, was like, who are some bad guys who I can write about? And Jim, Jim Jones was a really obvious one. Um, so I started researching it because of that. Um, yeah, and I did some of the research as part of that, but then, you know, had this story which I didn't really like and... Um, briefly like flirted with the idea of writing a a tv show of it like I I went as far as writing a pilot because I'm like this would be really cool as a tv show but of course I I have no contacts in that industry so writing a novel was a lot easier ultimately I'd watch the tv show (laughs) any other questions yeah interesting question so um the 70s seemed to have quite a few other cults including children of god and scientology sort of happening at a concurrent time to people's temple um, and this gentleman was just asking if laura thinks that that was a time that was particularly ripe for th- those kinds of groups or whether there are contemporary equivalents happening now thinking about that one thing that i remembered was um a man who i spoke to he joined the temple in 1969 um so around that time period and he was just like the 50s were so boring and then suddenly all this stuff was happening and it was great and you know he he said I think he he was from Texas and he's like you know I I knew people who were moving to India I knew people who were joining um, communes and living on communes and there was nothing like that before then and then suddenly stuff was springing up I think people just nowadays if stuff like that happened we'd of course be a lot more cynical about it but I think back then they, they were just like cool, something new and exciting is happening and, um, yeah, the world was changing and I think they were on board with that and um, didn't really have anything, I guess, you know, there was no Jonestown in the past to say joining something like this is bad. Um, It was just like, yeah, cool, something new. So I think that there was definitely a a lot of change happening and also people wanting to explore alternate spirituality and... um, also alternate family structures and community structures um they were from you know these nuclear families and these conventional sort of 1950s upbringings and 
maybe um, they wanted something different from that and they, they were like, this isn't satisfying. I'm, I can have something, yeah, different to that and see where it goes. Current day, do you see these things happening again? Have, we, have people learnt their lesson that if it smells like a cult, it's a cult? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, yeah, in Jonestown actually they had a sign hanging up saying um, – those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. But I think the past repeats itself all the time. Um, and, you know, you do see people in power who shouldn't be in power. So I think these things, there's always the potential of them happening. But I think as a whole, we're a bit more cynical now. So maybe it's less likely. Have, yeah. So have you heard about that? Uh, there's, there's a Smallville actress, of Alison Mack, who's accused of running a sex cult that's involves branding people and yeah pretty intense stuff take that as a comment <laughs> it's a little light reading afterwards uh we have time for one quick question if anyone has anything they'd like to ask yes did the people who escaped get hunted down and disposed of there there were a couple of i guess mysterious and questionable deaths which happened after um so yeah there's definitely basis for that theory um a couple who defected in 1976 were murdered I think pretty soon after Jonestown I don't remember the exact date so that that was dodgy and questionable also the Harvey Milk and George Moscone assassination happened days after People's Temple so there were a lot of conspiracy theories about whether that was connected somehow and also a high-up member of People's Temple called Mike Prokes. He was the public relations guy. Killed himself in 1980. And there was also a young woman who um, was in a circle and she had a relationship with a Guyanese ambassador who was quite powerful. Um, and she was killed by him about 10 years after People's Temple. So there, there is... I guess a, a bit of quite a bit of violence and um, you know unusual circumstances surrounding some of the people um, in their lives after the temple, but then there's all these other people who have just gone on with their lives, and there is quite a strong survivor community. So yeah, I, I don't think there's you know that actually happened, but um, there there are a few mysterious circumstances. Beautiful. Well. On that note, I would like to finish by thanking you all again for coming and emphasising just how wonderful this book is and I think this conversation you can tell like Laura's brain is so full of this story and these people and it's such a it's a such a jam-packed book but it's also so beautifully written so it's a total delight to read and you should uh, – Get a copy from your local library or purchase a copy from Brunswick Street Books this evening uh, and Laura would be very happy to sign, I'm sure. Uh, so thank you to Carlton Library for having us and please thank Laura Willett once again. That was Laura Elizabeth Willett in conversation with Veronica Sullivan at Carlton Library on August 22nd, 2018. We run regular author talks at all branches of Yarra Libraries, so please keep an eye on the website. For you, we'd recommend crime writer Jock Sarong because he'll be discussing his latest novel, Preservation, at Carlton Library on March 20th. If you are keen to read Beautiful Revolutionary or Laura's earlier work, please pop into your local branch or place a reservation online. 
In the meantime, Yarra Libraries promises not to approach you on public transport while you're clearly engrossed in your book. Happy reading!